Good evening, and welcome to the Legal Eagle Review, an informative and thought-provoking weekly show covering legal issues affecting everyday people. We know that there are many things you could be doing with your time, and we appreciate your decision to share this time with us. I'm Irving Joyner. And I'm April Dawson. We're law professors at North Carolina Central University School of Law, and we're your co-hosts. The Legal Eagle Review is sponsored by the NCCU School of Law and the Virtual Justice Project. We thank you for joining us this evening. For the past 17 years, she has been the face of WTVD Channel 11 Evening News as its anchor, and now she's gone. As such, this is a bittersweet discussion that we are having this evening with Tisha Powell, who has become family to so many people in the Triangle. We celebrate the outstanding 17 years that she gave to us, wish her well on her future journey, but mourn the fact that she is leaving us. As the old song says, it's so hard to say goodbye to yesterday. Tisha and her family joined the WTVD or Triangle family in 2004 and continued a long tradition of African-American female anchors following long tenures by Miriam Thomas and Beverly Burke. Immediately after joining the station, she became a role model and a visible part of this community. She has been very active in community affairs and gave liberally of her time and presence to a host of activities. In other words, she became a star in our world, but that involvement came at a huge price for her to pay. She started her tenure at WTVD with her husband, Dr. James Wayne, and her daughter, Nina, who is now enrolled at John Hopkins University. Over the years, the family has added Eva, who is now seven years old. The two sisters share the same birth date. Prior to her tenure at WTVD, Tisha worked in Columbus, Mississippi, wherever that is, New Orleans, Louisiana, and San Antonio, Texas, and has covered a wide range of news stories. She's a native of Homa, Louisiana, a graduate of Loyola University in New Orleans, and a proud AKA Soror. But her longest and most productive tenure has been right here in the uh, triangle. This celebrity statue, which she has earned, has been a blessing and a curse, which we will discuss during this conversation. So Tisha, thank you for uh, taking out this time and sharing it with us here on the uh, Legal Eagle Review. Thanks for inviting me. All right. Uh, let me just say at the outset, we, we, we're going to miss you. Uh, but we uh, certainly celebrate all that you have provided to and for us uh, uh, during your uh, long tenure. And I guess this is the longest time you stayed in anywhere except home. <laughs> yeah, you know, I never expected to stay this long, honestly. Um, I didn't really know what being in the triangle would bring. My husband thought it would be a good place for us because Fort Bragg is one of those places where you can, what they call homestead, you can come and stay for a while because it's one of the biggest military posts in the world. So typically when you get a four year 
stay somewhere, um, that time will expire and the army or whatever branch of the military you're in will send you somewhere else. Um, but Fort Bragg, Fort Hood, Fort Campbell, Kentucky, those places are a lot bigger so you can um, move to another, another job on the same post and it allows you to stay a little longer. And it, it's not one of those desirable places like uh, Fort Carson, Colorado or Fort Sam Houston, Texas that are near these uh, cities where people wanna retire to. So you don't get pushed out of, of Fort Bragg people um, can stay a little bit longer. And that's what we ended up doing. My husband stayed active from 2004 to 2012 and then joined the reserves and was able to find reserve units at Fort Bragg as well that allowed us to stay even longer with minimal travel for him. But um, I started off at ABC 11 doing the five. And then I picked up the 530 and then I picked up the 10 and they said, hey, we need you to do the 11. Can you do the 11? <laughs> so I figured I was already there. Sure, I'll do the 11. Um, and then they pulled me off the 530 in preparation for Larry Stogner's retirement and said, we're going to put you back with Larry. I started with Larry at five and they put me back with Larry at six in preparation for Larry eventually retiring, and I would be the link between the uh, Larry retiring and a familiar face on the six o'clock newscast. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's how it, how it all played out and uh, took 17 years. <laughs> well, you know, everybody wants to know. Okay. And uh, this is the question of the day, that here you are on this side of heaven, why did you want to leave and give up all of this joy? Quite simply, I was exhausted. Um, I think I might have said that to the newspaper. Um, 11 o'clock would roll around at night. See, I'm from the central time zone. I grew up in the central time zone. And it's 1026 here. And um, 11 o'clock was always late for me. And I would get up really early to get my children ready for school. And um, at least, you know, six o'clock, I'm making lunches, I'm getting them dressed. Um, and then I'm going to be up and I have to be my best at 11 o'clock at night. And I remember doing a story at Duke Hospital with an endocrinologist, I believe, I was doing a story on sickle cell disease. I was a health reporter for many years. And I enjoyed that because it allowed me the opportunity to kind of have that connection with my husband. I would bounce story ideas off of him and he would tell me whether or not that was a good story or if it was just something old that was repackaged. And you know, I would be able to come up with a, a better idea with his help usually. But I was talking to a doctor and he said, the only thing that's keeping you going is youth. Mm -hmm. And when you, you're going to eventually hit a, an age where you are going to say, I can't do this anymore. I'm tired. And I need to dedicate a little bit more time to actually sleeping at night and, and taking better care of myself instead of running, running, running. Um, and that, that was pretty much it. Um, I had talked to ABC 11 about coming off nights. And it was just never a good time. But I think you have to figure out for yourself when it's a good time. Yeah. 
And my older daughter graduated from high school. She was at the North Carolina School of Science and Math. So we needed to be in North Carolina until she graduated because you have to have a parent living in the state to be to attend school there. And um, after she graduated, we thought about it again. We revisited the idea. We thought about it in 2012 when my husband left active duty military. And I think at that time, Nina was settled into school and had her friend circle. And um, we were doing things in the community and, and we were having a really good time and work was great. Everything was great. Um, but I just really started to feel a tighter pull here when my mother got sick. And um, she passed away two years ago. I was back and forth and back and forth. And my husband started to see the same thing in his dad and his parents who are elderly people now. Um, so it was a combination of things just all coming together. But I would say the two biggest things were, um, I, I was tired of um, staying up so late at night and uh, our parents are getting older. Yeah. Now you're from uh, Homa. I'm actually from Thibodeau. Oh my goodness! But you know what? It's the same place. <laughs> Homa Thibodeau. They call it the Homa the Homa Thibodeau area. I grew up on the Lafouche Parish Terrebonne Parish line. All right. Uh, yeah. Can you kind of talk about coming from that little small community mm -hmm. uh, and developing this uh, desire? or intent or goal on uh, becoming a, uh, a journalist? It all started, my mother was my high school guidance counselor. Mm. And um, the story is twofold. Um, I watched the news a lot with my parents. They were always up early watching the morning news, watching WWL. They would watch Andre Trevine and Eric Paulson on WWL. Yeah. And um, I watched Andre Trevine and she just became an idol to me. And I eventually got to run the teleprompter for her as a college student um, at Loyola University. But um, in between growing up watching Andre, my mother was my guidance counselor and she always encouraged us to come up with a plan for whatever it was we wanted to do. And I told her, at one time that I wanted to be an architect. And she said, well, there's this architectural drafting class and you can take that as an elective and decide, you know, if this is really what you wanna do. So I looked at the roster for the class and I noticed that it was all boys. And I thought, okay, I don't wanna sit in this class with all boys in my cheerleader skirt and have them heckling me <laughs> the whole time. So I said, what else is there? Maybe, I, maybe that's not what I want. It was also in the shop building. It was a building that I never went into. I didn't even know what was over there. All I, know was, all I knew was that all boys were in that building. And you know how young boys are, they'll pick on you. And I just didn't wanna be picked on. So she said, well, there's this newspaper class you could, write for the newspaper. And I thought, well, I like the teacher. She was one of my English teachers. So she put me in that newspaper class and it was called the Smoke Signals. Not the most politically correct thing. Um, we were the HL Bourgeois High School Braves. And the name of the newspaper is probably still the Smoke Signals. And I fell in love with interviewing people and writing and getting to know people and telling their stories. and 
I remember asking the teacher, can we turn this into a newscast, you know, a morning newscast, like the one I watch every day on WWL. And we had one of those um, camcorders, the video cameras, and I brought that to school and set up just a folding table. And I don't even remember what we had behind us, but we, you know, just took the newspaper and read the stories from the newspaper on, on camera. And I got the principal to air it on the TV in homeroom. And uh, it, that was the start of it all. Um, I started in that one journalism class, that one newspaper print class, and I became a TV news major at Loyola, broadcast communications major with a minor in political science because I took an interest to political reporting. Being from Louisiana, I'm sure you're aware of the political corruption and how politics is very colorful um, in South Louisiana, just like Chicago. It's, it's uh, you, you get into it and you become fascinated by it. Um, I did political reporting for a while when I was here, but then I, I started to like health more when I got to San Antonio and started covering more health stories. And then I continued health throughout my tenure at ABC 11. But that's how it all started. Well, can you kind of talk about the, uh, the journey you had to uh, travel through as a uh, black girl from a little small town in uh, Louisiana, uh, trying to make it in uh, journalism, which was then a uh, white profession. And some of the uh, uh, barriers that you encountered along the way. You know, um, I had a lot of people looking out for me along the way. The first one was my journalism professor at Loyola, Nancy DuPont who always, she, she went to teach at Ole Miss. She's Dr. DuPont, now at Ole Miss. And there's a connection to the North Carolina Central University Communications Department as well. I remember talking to some folks over there and they were like, yeah, we know Nancy DuPont. Um, she was my professor and uh, always very encouraging. Never gave me the impression that I was not capable. I also had the the luck of being in a, a predominantly black market um, in New Orleans, Louisiana. And I was able to see people who looked like me. Some were a little lighter in complexion um, like Andre Trevine, but um, I knew they were black uh, and they were on television in, in New Orleans and I was able to watch them growing up. And I knew that there was a place for me. It wasn't always easy and I didn't always get the jobs that I wanted, but, um, and it was also challenging for me because I married someone in the military. So I knew I was never gonna be able to cast that wide net and go where, you know, I got the call. I was always going to have to get a job near an army post. So I, I was always gonna have to face that challenge. I got my first job in Columbus, Mississippi and Columbus, Mississippi is Northeast Mississippi, not too far from Tuscaloosa, Alabama. Yeah. I had a friend who was in a graduate program at the University of Alabama and I would drive to go and see her. And I, I don't remember it being that far, but it was Northeast Mississippi. I'd never heard of the place. It is the home of Tennessee Williams. And uh, they moved his birth home 
over closer to the interstate from wherever it was closer to the interstate and they turned it into a visitor center. So that's probably Columbus, the Columbus, Mississippi claim to fame is the home of Tennessee Williams. Um, it's not that far from Oxford, from uh, Tupelo, Mississippi. So that was a, a dual market, Columbus, Tupelo. And I would tell people in Columbus that I was from Thibodeau and they would say, Tupelo? No, Thibodeau. <laughs> that would happen all the time. But uh, Mississippi was a challenge. Mm. You could definitely feel the tension. Um, I was nervous going to a lot of going on a lot of stories. Um, I had a photographer that I worked with a lot who was also African American. So we were careful. Um, we wouldn't go down too many dirt roads and go too far off the beaten path. We, you know, wanted to make it home. Mm -hmm. um, it, it was an area that still was set in its ways. And um, I, I would, you know, try to shake hands with people and they would not. Um, it, was, it was challenging, especially for someone who was very young. I might've been 21 years old, fresh out of college. And that was my first reporting job. So New Orleans was definitely a more diverse place um, and that's where I would go out with news crews as an intern and Columbus, Mississippi definitely had a different feel. So I stayed there for about 10 months. I just, I, I just wanted to go home. So my husband was in medical school at Tulane and he left the United States military Academy and went to be a, uh, a med school student at Tulane. So I decided to leave. Columbus, WCBI. I don't think I was even there a year. And I took a job as an admissions counselor at Loyola University. And uh, I did that for a couple of months and got a call from one of the only African-American news directors that I knew in the business named Kurt Davis. And he was working as the news director for WDSU. And one of my sorors was an intern at the station. She had fished my resume tape out of, I, I don't want to call it a garbage pile, <laughs> but it was a mail bin of tapes that, uh, discarded tapes that he, I think, had gone through. She took it out of his mail bin, gave it back to him and said, this is my friend. Look at this tape. She's here now. She left Columbus, Mississippi. He looked at the tape and he said, you know, there's something there. And he called me and said, why don't you come and see me? We'll talk about your future. Mm. And um, he said, what are you doing? <laughs> I remember saying, well, I made a career change. He said, no, you quit. You gave up, you quit. And I said, but it was really hard. And I, I, I don't know if I can do this anymore. And he said, look, my part-time reporter is now full-time. So I have a part-time position open. I know you've only been in the business for like 10 months. It was a huge jump in market size. I was in market uh, 120 and this was market 40 at the time. This is pre-Katrina New Orleans. So it was big city. And I had no idea what I was doing. I was so green, but he said, you know, we're gonna do this together. I'm going to review tape with you every night. And we're gonna talk about what you did right, what you did wrong and how to get better. And that was the beginning of getting back into, into the business that I thought 
was had ended for me. You know, he he called me and said, you can do this. And, and that's what I needed at the time. All right, this is the uh, Legal 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 Review, and uh, we're going to have to take a couple of minutes for our quick little break uh, here. We're talking with uh, Tisha Powell about her uh, departure from our fair land here in uh, Eagle Land. And I uh, want you to uh, stay with us as we continue this uh, discussion, but we'll be right back. Since 2010, the North Carolina Central University School of Law has been at the forefront of virtual legal education with the launch of its Virtual Justice Project. The Virtual Justice Project is an innovation in legal education and technology. NCCU School of Law pioneered this approach to address the underrepresentation of African-American lawyers and a lack of access to justice for low-income and marginalized communities. Virtual pre-law courses prepare students, wherever they are, for the rigor of law school. The Know Your Rights series offers legal information sessions that empower participants to understand the law and to promote self-advocacy. Both the pre-law courses and the legal information sessions are made possible through telepresence and high-definition video conferencing. Course listings and contact information, along with more detail about the Virtual Justice Project, are on the NCCU Law website at law.nccu.edu. Okay, we're back on the uh, Legal Legal Review, and we're continuing our conversation with uh, Tisha Powell has uh, uh, been gracious enough uh, to join us uh, this evening to uh, talk about uh, her uh, future journey as she's moving out of WTVD, Channel 11, uh, and uh, we've grown so accustomed to her over the past uh, 17 years, and now she's gone to uh, higher land or lower land, whichever. Lower way. land, much lower. <laughs> <laughs> but Tisha, can you kind of talk about, you know, and, 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 uh, and I reflect somewhat on uh, the uh, Nicole uh, Hannah-Jones uh, situation at, uh, at Carolina, uh, where there is uh, uh, an interest on her part and other African-American journalists, and I guess uh, to a large extent also uh, females, uh, in uh, uh, bringing the profession into uh, an area of, uh, of, of accommodating the uh, marginalized uh, communities. Uh, what has been your experience in dealing with the necessity of pushing the uh, profession forward and pushing the profession in a uh, different direction so that it uh, echoes uh, the uh, concerns of uh, minorities and uh, uh, other individuals who have been left out of a society uh, so that they can be uh, situated on an equal playing ground. You know, the death of George Floyd just pulled back the curtain on the need for telling certain stories. Um, and it, I worked for ABC 11, which we know um, we, we would always say 
WTVD, we are owned by Disney. Um, the, Disney is the parent company of ABC 11 is what, what, what was tacked at the end of every story that we read about um, something Disney related. Um, with the death of George Floyd came, you know, a movement to cover more stories about what was happening with marginalized communities. And we finally, as black journalists felt just an opportunity, all of a sudden these stories that we had been pushing for, for years and years and years and years were finally given um, the green light, you know, to do them. I mean, it was downright shocking, <laughs> you know, that all of a sudden, and then these same stories were being pitched by our white counterparts and they were, you know, given the opportunity to do a story that, you know, we had been wanting to do for the longest time, but we were just happy that the, the stories were being done. Um, but it, it's been, it's been rough to, and, and we tried to support each other from the African-American reporters to the producers, everyone who was in those editorial meetings in the morning, talking about doing stories that you know affected the black community or other you know marginalized communities in the area and it took it took george floyd and what happened to validate these stories in a way which you know i i can remember sending text messages to somebody in one of our meetings it might have been anthony wilson one of the other reporters you know telling him are you actually are you listening to this you know remember when we pitched that story like three years ago and um, you know how it just wasn't of any interest. It was hard to get certain things through, um, but it seems like we finally have the support of you know the powers that be to do to do some of these stories. And and for us in newsrooms, you always have to look at the community that you're covering, whether or not. I I always knew that I could get a main anchor job in Durham, North Carolina, because I knew that Miriam Thomas had done it and that the population of Durham warranted it. Um, when I left San Antonio, I was able to get a main anchor job because the person who had hired me the first time at KABB became the general manager at a cable news station. It was the sister station of News 14 Carolina. He made me the main anchor. There were no main anchors, uh, African-American main anchors in the city of San Antonio at the mm -hmm. time. So I was the only one. And I knew that if I was going to have that, that place shut down, Time Warner and Velo, the company that partnered to start up that station, um, decided they didn't want to run it anymore and, and shut it down. So I knew that I was going to have to go to a place where someone had done it before or there were enough African-Americans in that population that I would be able to get a main anchor job. And with that comes the responsibility of pushing for those stories that affect our community and everyone in the community. Um, and it, it's been a difficult feat because they look at where are the meters, you know, um, and, and the meters tell you who's watching. And a lot of them are in Wake County. So you end up doing a lot of stories about that area and not necessarily other areas. So you're always fighting that battle of this story matters, this community matters. And um, 
you can get discouraged sometimes, um, but you can't let it stop you. You have to continue to, to speak up. And, you know, hearing you talk about the, you know, what goes on in journalism, and of course, I'm thinking about other professions like, you know, the legal field, um, and there's Mm -hmm. so many others, and we know that these professional spaces are not always supportive of Black individuals. Um, And you've talked a lot about those specific folks who have supported you and encouraged you. but when you are in a, in a space that where you don't always feel supported or welcome, mental health, um, self-health help care is, is so vital. Can you talk about your approach and your philosophy about making sure that you were able to take care of yourself with the help of um, other organizations or other folks uh, who were compassionate about what being a Black individual and particularly a Black woman in these spaces and the need for that? Well, I am a firm believer in therapy (laughs) because in TV news, in journalism in general, um, when you hear these stories day after day after day, year after year, I mean, I tell this story about a young mother that I interviewed after her daughter was shot and killed in a housing development in New Orleans. I was very young. I was early 20s. Um, New Orleans was only my second job. And they would always send me, I covered crime for a long time. And I had to talk to these people who would literally cry on my shoulder. You can only, and I bring up this woman because I am a mother now. And at the time I didn't realize this is the lowest point in this woman's life. Mm -hmm. Um, All I knew was I needed to go out and do this story. I didn't want to let my new news director down who was giving me a shot. You know, I was really green and probably not as qualified as I should have been for that particular job. But I see her a lot and I think about, you know, is she okay? Does she remember, does she know that I didn't really know what I was doing <laughs> at the time? Um, but those stories, they stick with you and they haunt you. And it's hard, these are, these are real people with real stories and real issues. And, and year after year, you, you take all that on and, and you have to get it out. You have to talk to somebody about it because this is what you do for a living. But then you also have the stressors of being a parent and worrying about you know, what's going on with your children. You're, you're somebody's spouse. I'm that sandwich generation of I've got children, I've got ailing parents. And then I go to work and I also have to take on you know, the stressors of the, the weight of the stories that we cover and, and doing them right and doing them justice. So you do have to pay attention to that. And, um, and I think that's one of the reasons also why I'm, I'm stepping back for a little bit is I need a, I need a break. Um, I was doing a lot in the community, working with um, the Triangle Park chapter of the Lynx and also with uh, Alpha Kappa Alpha and some other organizations where I was able to find peers where we would talk about these things. And we would talk about the stressors of, you know, our positions, whether they were, you know, politicians or 
doctors and nurses, people in the medical field who've had to work through COVID. Um, we, we would get together and, you know, even if it was just on Zoom, you know, and, and talk to each other about how we could stay mentally and emotionally and physically healthy. Um, and you, you can't shut yourself off and deal with it. You need to, to talk about it. And, and I always found that very helpful, you know, in addition to the professionals, you know, that I was talking to over the years. Um, sometimes when my mom, when my mom got sick, I had a harder time. So I was actually seeing someone like every other week, you know, and I would talk about it. And, but then, you know, I had my peers that I would also talk to, you know, even if it's just a text message, how are you doing today? And, or a, a phone conversation here and there. But mm -hmm. um, it's definitely something you need to pay attention to. You, you talk about the, um, I guess the trauma from the, the hard stories, from the, mm -hmm. uh, uh, those uh, traumatic experiences that people are having, but you also get the opportunity to talk about the uh, bright sides yes. of, uh, of life. I see where you, uh, uh, you were in San Antonio when uh, San Antonio Spurs were uh, uh, NBA champions and you had a chance to interact uh, with uh, the team and to uh, talk with them. And then uh, there are other great stories that uh, you had, uplifting stories that uh, tend to uh, show the positive side of, uh, of, of life. What were some of the uh, your, your better stories uh, yeah. that uh, that kind of impacted you in a, in, in, a, in a positive way? You know, I, I may have mentioned this story in um, my farewell piece about the the Golden Girls. I know you know who they are. Um, one of my executive producers said, I want you to go do this story. It's about um, four North Carolina Central University law students who are, who are judges. And I thought, okay, that sounds interesting. Um, but I got to meet them and realized how unique the story actually was. Because I want to say three of them are elected judges. So to, I think one may be appointed but um, they told me about you know, how they bonded over episodes of the Golden Girls and how they ended up living in the dorm together, which was also interesting because most law students end up living in apartments and they don't you know, <laughs> live together in the dorm. So I thought, okay, that's, that's interesting. And they talked about cooking meals in the microwave. And, um, but just also the importance of representation and um, I remember, I think it was Judge Wright talking about how a young boy stuck his head in the courtroom and said, she is black. You know, he didn't believe that the judge was going to be a black woman. But um, I enjoyed meeting them and hearing their story and, and their friendship just, you know, warms my heart. Um, and they also talked about how they bounce, you know, ideas and, and issues off each other and having that network of, of women is so important. Um, what are some of the other stories? I think the stories, I enjoyed doing stories with young people, with uh, children, going to visit schools. Um, let's see, I'm, why am I drawing a blank right now? <laughs> but just, just definitely getting out in, into the community and helping my nonprofits too. 
um, being able to figure out how to fit those stories into the newscast, how to ask people to help organizations that benefited young people, you know, book harvest stories, um, fill your bucket list stories with, you know, helping people with cancer, um, getting to do those stories where these people don't have budgets for advertising. You know, they, they want to spend their money on actually helping the community. So being able to give them quality pieces that they could put on their websites to help um, with their fundraising efforts. Um, I always appreciated doing that. Okay, now we're going to have to take another break. Okay. Right now. Uh, we are talking with uh, Tisha Powell, uh, who has left us. Uh, here in the uh, triangle, but is moving on now to bigger and uh, and better things. We want you to stay with us as we continue uh, this uh, this conversation. So we'll be right back. Good evening. My name is Reginald Woods II, and I am a current Tuwell at the North Carolina Central University School of Law. And I would like to personally thank you for supporting and listening to the Legal Eagle Review, an informative and thought-provoking show that is made possible by the Virtual Justice Project of the North Carolina Central University School of Law, as well as listeners like yourself. For more information regarding the show, or past episodes, or the latest happenings surrounding our host, please follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at the Legal Eagle Review. Again, my name is Reginald Wist II, and thank you for listening. Okay, we're back with uh, Tisha Powell and talking about uh, her career as a uh, broadcast uh, journalist and she was talking about some of the upsides of the uh, reporting uh, career that uh, that she's had. Um, want to kind of direct you though back to uh, your reporting. I know that you were sent back down to uh, New Orleans to uh, cover the uh, Katrina uh, uh, devastating experience uh, there. And I don't know whether that was a story that you uh, requested or one that uh, your uh, uh, superiors wanted you uh, to cover because of your connections uh, with uh, New Orleans. But can you kind of talk about uh, that experience and, uh, and, 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 and your uh, reactions to what it was that uh, you were dealing with uh, down in, uh, in, in New Orleans? So, I was sitting at my desk actually watching some of the reporting on CNN. And um, I remember my news director at the time, who's now the general manager of ABC 11, Rob Elmore, had asked me if I wanted to go down. And I said, absolutely. Watching it on television and, and I, I just felt the pull to go down there. Um, one thing about covering Katrina, it's hard to cover. It was hard to cover if you were not from the area because I can remember people asking me, how do I get here? How do I get there? Because New Orleans is a saucer, you know, it's below sea level and most of the city was flooded. So people wanted to get to certain parts of town 
And my executive producer that went down with me, Mark Falgu, um, he also knew his way around. It was like being on assignment out of town, but not really, you know, I, because I knew the area like the back of my hand and I knew how to get around the water. So that was very beneficial for, you know, anyone covering Katrina would be to have some sort of familiarity with that area because the highest points are near the river. So if you need to get from one area of town to the other side of town, if you stay close to the Mississippi River and follow the river road, then that will keep you out of the water because that will keep you out of the middle of the area that was flooded. We stayed in a trailer, like a camper, um, Winnebago in I think Denham Springs, not far from where I am now because there was nowhere to stay um, in New Orleans. The city was virtually shut down. Um, I remember the National Guard being around, but our goal was to get in and out before nightfall and to make sure that we always had enough gas and knew exactly what we were gonna be doing that day. Because if we ran out of gas, there was nowhere to get more gas. <laughs> so, you know, we had to come up north um, to make sure that we could get back to our, our trailer. And it was a KOA campground. That's my first, I'd never heard of that before. I'd never, I'd been camping, you know, as a Girl Scout, but I was not familiar with the, you know, KOA campground. And that's where I was told to go. And um, it, it really didn't hit me. I think I, I was surviving on adrenaline and hot water and granola bars, you know, for about a week. But it really didn't hit me what had really happened until I watched the Spike Lee when the levees broke documentary like a year later. Um, because I was, when you're in the middle of something and, and you are, you know, a, a professional doing what you do, you learn how to compartmentalize and you learn how to get the job done and to emotionally separate from things. You know, I, I, I'm sure if you're a lawyer in the courtroom, you may have a, a particular case that you're covering that may hit close to home for some reason. You're able to push through it and do the job that you're there to do. And then, you know, when it's all over is when it really, I think, hits you the most when you're sitting at home and you're thinking about it, you know, what happened that day? Or you're talking about it to someone else. But when I went down there, um, I was, literally paddling down streets that I had driven over and over again. I remember convincing my producer to paddle down to my mother-in-law's house just to, just to see it, you know, sitting in eight feet of water. Because I mean, this was, it almost felt like I was on a movie set. It was just surreal. Even the places that weren't underwater, just the quiet mm. of no one being there. And it just felt like it was like post, you know, war where, you know, all of the people had been run out and there was like a bombing or something. It just kind of felt that way. Like you were, where are all the people? What is going on? It's so quiet. And, you know, then there were people trapped in places and you could hear them, you know, when we were passing by, they would say, hello, do you have any water? I remember giving some water to a family trapped in their homes. They didn't have a boat. And I had met some people along the way who had taken some water out of a Walgreens 
And we had given them some water and they let us use their boat to paddle down to my mother-in-law's house. And when I got there, I had to climb out of the boat, fling my leg over the railing of the stairs to try to get past the water and went into the house and got some jewelry that she had left behind that she wanted because she forgot to lock the door on her way out because everything was you know, frantic at the time. Um, but I, people ask me, you know, why are you in Baton Rouge? Why didn't you go back to New Orleans? I just know it's not the same. You know, you can't really go back to another time, you know, because I was much younger when I lived there. And then you also can't go back to pre-Katrina New Orleans either. So, we decided to come here because James's family, my husband's family, they all live here. You know, I mean, his, his dad's right around the corner. My dad's a, an hour north of here in Mississippi. Um, but I just didn't want to move back to New Orleans and expect things to be the same because I knew, you know, things that washed away, literally washed away in the storm. And, um, I just knew that I couldn't, it, it's, it's not going home again. It, it just, it wouldn't be the same. So um, my husband got a job here and that's how we ended up here. But those memories, you know, floating down Napoleon Avenue, I, I, watching the video kind of brought it all back. But um, it was uh, something I'll never forget. Yeah, you know, it's been fascinating hearing you share your your journey, and it's incredibly beneficial, especially for young people, to hear the career journey of, of someone that they admire, may aspire to um, emulate. And you mentioned the importance of representation being available. You mentioned how you enjoy interacting with young people. And I wanted to ask if you had any advice or suggestions for young people who may be interested in becoming a broadcast journalist? Mm -hmm. One thing that I would say is never think that you can't do something. Uh, things are a lot different now than they were when I was coming out, coming up. Um, people can do a lot, a lot sooner, I've noticed now. Um, when I got to New Orleans as a young reporter, I was literally the youngest reporter in the newsroom. <laughs> um, and, and that was considered a pretty big market at the time, but people can now start in much larger markets right out of college. They're hiring a lot younger. Um, it's also a lot easier to get yourself out there with the internet. I remember Brittany Bell, one of our meteorologists who's now at WABC in New Orleans, in uh, New York, said that uh, people would find her by just Googling meteorologist, you know, or African-American black female meteorologist, and she would pop up. Before we had to make tapes and mail them out. Now you can go to, you can create a website and put all your work on it that way. Or you can upload your information and your reels to one of these sites where news directors go and, and find talent. It's a lot easier to, to really put yourself out there. And I would definitely take advantage of that. Make those, um, those reels, those digital reels, and put them on these websites where you know, news directors go looking for 
looking for talent. Um, it's a lot easier to be seen. Um, but definitely don't feel like I'm too young. <laughs> um, I remember reading about a, a young person who is now working in W at, uh, in Washington, DC. She was introduced to me by Anthony Wilson, who was working with her through NABJ. Her name is Jeanette Reyes. And she talked about suffering from imposter syndrome and not taking a job in a bigger market because she felt like she wasn't ready. And I now tell people, you let them decide whether or not you're ready. You know, the people doing the hiring, if they see something in you, just go with it um, and, and take advantage of the opportunity. Sometimes we used to, we used to say in television, fake it till you make it. I wouldn't, I wouldn't say fake it. I would say know what you're doing, but uh, definitely take advantage of opportunities that are afforded to you through people who see something in you. I was really tempted to not go back to television, to not go to WDSU because I felt like, oh my God, I don't want to embarrass myself. But um, Kurt Davis said, I will help you. Take advantage of people who are willing to help you, who are in your space. Like whenever a, a reporter will come over to my desk at WTVD, and we don't have, we didn't have that as much during COVID because no one was allowed in the, in the building. But leading up to COVID, young students would come and say, you know, what do you think I should do? Um, and I would always start off by saying, are you the writer? Are you working on your writing? Are you talking to these producers? Are you writing for the newscast? Are you letting them review your work? Um, are you, do you have a tape put together yet? Do you have a reel? Are, are you ready to show people what you can do? Do you have your elevator pitch ready? You know, do you know what you want to do? Do you know if you want to do medical reporting, um, breaking news, crime, politics, health? What is it that you want to do? And I would just discuss with them all of the possibilities. And I think that's like my mother always said, what is your plan? Do you have a plan? And, and the plan doesn't always work out the way you want it to, but at least know where you're gonna start. You know, do you wanna live here? Do you want to try to get jobs in, in bigger markets farther away? Can you, can you leave your family? Do you have the courage to leave your family and, and move away to where the jobs are? Sometimes the first job isn't necessarily at home. Um, I moved to Columbus, Mississippi, which wasn't that far. I could drive, it was five hours away. But you have to be willing to go, go where the work is sometimes. And, and, and that's leaving everything you know. And you have to be willing to venture out sometimes. And I would always tell them that. And the theme throughout your professional career has been mentor-mentee relationships. And you've been you know, a mentee, uh, you've also been a mentor. Can you talk about how to be a good mentor and how to be a good mentee? Sometimes young people underestimate the importance of these types of relationships. Mm -hmm. Always make time. I remember one day I was running, literally running down the street. It was a SWAT roll. Um, someone was holed up in a house and this was in, back in New Orleans and someone was holed up in a house. I don't remember all of the story, but 
we were waiting and usually as a general assignment reporter and the SWAT team is surrounded a, a home and someone's in there usually with a firearm, that can take hours. And you try to write the story so you can make your deadline based on what you think might happen. Um, and then you can fill in the blanks later. You just kind of put something together, some outline together. Um, and it was almost five o'clock and I had just found out that the person had committed suicide in the house and had probably been in there, you know, deceased for a while while we were waiting outside. So I needed to go make some adjustments to, I needed to add to what I, I had already written. And I was running down the street and there were these kids chasing behind me. And I, I remember saying, I gotta go, I gotta go do my story. I gotta go do my story. I'm gonna miss slot. And a photographer from the market, I don't remember what station he worked for. I know he wasn't my photographer because my photographer was already in the live shot wait in the live truck waiting for me. And this photographer said, always make time for children. And I thought, oh, okay. <laughs> you know, and I stopped that moment and I had, and I mean, the conversation might have taken 30 seconds to a minute just to acknowledge the fact that they wanted to meet me and they wanted to just know, you know, just how are you doing? What is it like to be on television? And, you know, and ever since that day, I will always stop for a young person and um, I will answer their questions. And, and I think it's just important to return their calls to, to be available. And sometimes you miss them, you know, you may not able, be able to return every Facebook message, you know, or at, because social media, you get bombarded now, you know, with social media, it's hard to return every, every message. But um, I, I just always think, make, try to make that time, you know, to, to have a conversation. It might mean the difference between someone going into the journalism profession or going into something totally different. You know, whatever you say, matters and and it'll stick in their minds but i always tell people you know sometimes you have to work for free and my internships did not pay and i had two of them i was the intern who never left i started off running the teleprompter for sally ann roberts robin roberts older sister and um i'm i'm just so grateful for that woman, because she could have, you know, told them to please escort this girl. Because <laughs> I, I was not the best prompter operator. The teleprompter at the time was a conveyor belt, and you would lay the scripts down on top of it, and the camera would shine down on it, and you would, um, you know, put the scripts in or pull them out. When a producer would kill a story, you would take the page out and scoot the other ones closer together. And sometimes I would forget. And I remember one day, the producer said, I thought I had killed that story. Sally Ann Roberts was reading the story and I yanked it out. <laughs> and she, I could, you could see the, you know, the look on her face. She was completely startled by it. And I was like, oh my God, I'm getting fired today. I know I'm getting fired today, but she did not fire me. She let me learn and let me get better at what I was doing. And um, I stayed at that internship until WGNO started doing news. And I think this was like 94 or so. And uh, I went over to WGNO and, and worked for free some more, 
you know, I was there on like Monday, Wednesday, Friday, I would go until, you know, like six until 10, it's, you know, in the central time zone, it's a 10 o'clock news. And I stayed there for hours and I just learned as much as I possibly could learn. And, and I would tell young people, put yourself in positions where you can learn from people. And sometimes it doesn't always pay. And I do understand that you need, you know, a paying job to pay your rent or whatever it is that you need to, you know, do to take care of yourself. But if you can squeeze in that extra time, what you're getting is invaluable, you know, that, that experience and whatever career path, you know, that may be. Well, Tisha Powell, thank you so much for taking time to talk with us. As Irv has said repeatedly, we so enjoyed watching you on the evening news at WTVD Channel 11. You will be sorely missed. Um, we thank you for all of your service here in North Carolina, and we wish you the best as you begin this next chapter in your life. We would also like to thank our listening audience, of course, for listening to the Legal Eagle Review. We are sure you've enjoyed the show. If you have any comments or questions, please send us an email. You can reach us at LegalEagleReview at nccu.edu. And if you ever miss this show on Sunday, you can find the show on our Legal Eagle Review podcast. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Until next week, stay informed, engaged, healthy, and safe.